Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hello, I'm Anne McElvoy, head of Economist Radio, and you're listening to our Livable Cities special. Coming up, we hear how crisis can transform a cityscape. Medan Tahrir, which was the centre of the Arab Spring, the place where the population of Cairo thronged together to oust President Hosni Mubarak, has been essentially closed off. These are very difficult times for Caracas and for Venezuela. Where Brexit refugees might head next. I think what makes Frankfurt a solid choice is exactly that. It's got all the basic infrastructure in place to be a financial city. London, it's for for old school fuddy-duddies. Mumbai is clearly the the financial city of the future. And whether a city can in fact be too livable for its own good. Toronto might be livable, but it's getting harder and harder to be able to afford a house there. I love Atlanta. And like anyone you love, you start out loving it despite its imperfections and end up loving it because of them. The Economist Intelligence Unit has just released its annual survey of the world's most and least livable cities. It takes in 140 cities from all over the world and ranks them in order of livability. Earlier, I spoke to John Kopstake from the EIU and I asked him why rank livability. Well, I think there's there's two or three reasons why people use the survey and why they find utility in it. The first reason is that, I mean, quite at its sympathy, it's quite useful for people to know where they want to live or where they want to move to around the world. People use the survey to negotiate, for example, hardship remuneration when they're doing their uh, salary negotiations if they're moving as expatriates. Companies may also use the survey to see, you know, uh, as a quick sense check on destinations that they might want to invest in or or move locations to. But then, um, obviously, one of our biggest clients is obviously the cities themselves. Cities will also buy the survey and and they're very interested in in, uh, where they stand and how they can improve. And what are the measures of livability in the study? How do we know that they measure up to real life experience as opposed to what people would like to report to you? It's a very subjective area, obviously. So we try to assess the areas that are least challenging to people. The best city in the world is down entirely to the eye of the beholder. Whoever moves to a city, you know, likes a city, they might like a vibrant city, they might like a quiet city, they, they might like green space. A lot of that's down to personal tastes. So in terms of livability, what we do is we set out a, a number of uh, issues that, that might affect someone's lifestyle, stability, healthcare, infrastructure, cultural environment, uh, education. And we, we assess whether or not a city uh, presents a challenge to the lifestyle in that area. And then we, we, we build it back from that. So in a way, the, the most livable city is the least not livable city. Right. So tell me what the most livable, least not livable city is or give us a feeling as well of what you find surprising. So Melbourne came top uh, and then it was followed closely by uh, Vienna and Vancouver and Toronto. There's a lot of Canadian and Australian cities in, in the top top cities as well. The top cities aren't separated by very much. They're all very close together and they all really reflect, um, you know, not scoring very highly and being very unchallenging in, in a lot of areas. As you get towards the bottom, the cities tend to be a little bit more spread out and stretched out. When it comes to being one of the least unlivable places in the world, there's one thing you can't afford, crisis. 
From financial crash to civil war, chaos and tumult characterises the cities that prop up the list, from war-torn Damascus to oil-crash-afflicted Lagos. And that led us to ask, how does a crisis transform the livability of a city in practice? One area we've seen an extraordinary era of cataclysm and revolt in some of the world's most beautiful cities is the Arab world and the Middle East. Here's Nick Pelham. Hi, I'm Nick Pelham, the Economist's uh, Middle East correspondent. I've been covering the region for pretty much 30 years. There's something about the city in the Middle East which goes to the core of the region's identity, to its religious identity, to its cultural identity, that the ancient classical cities of Damascus and Baghdad and Cairo conjure up the magic of uh, a thousand and one nights, of an age of, of civilization, of great flowering of culture. And the tragedy of, of recent years has been the erosion of that city as uh, the region used to know it. According to Nick, one of the great frustrations for citizens after the Arab Spring has been the closing off of public space. Open space where people would gather together, whether it was in the Hippodrome in the past or in the Maidan or the, the mosque, has been gradually whittled away by rulers that wanted to maximise the city both for a development, for commercial exploitation, but also for control of a population. And we've seen this very much uh, accelerate with the uh, Arab Spring, where Maidan Tahrir, which was the centre of the um, Arab Spring, the place where the population of Cairo thrown together to oust President Hosni Mubarak has been essentially closed off. It's been ringed round with fences, new security installations have been established. And so areas where the population had gathered together in the past have been either turned into war zones or shut down by incoming despots. Stephen Gibbs is our man in Caracas, another city undergoing profound disruption. Now this really should be one of the best capital cities in Latin America. Apart from anything else, the weather here is nearly perfect. Its setting is spectacular. It's framed by this verdant green mountain, the Avila. But these are very difficult times for Caracas and for Venezuela. This is a country in the midst of the world's steepest recession, and it has been really for the last three years. And the effect on the citizenry has been impossible to miss. It's really the security that has the biggest effect. People tend to assume that it's not safe uh, to walk the streets at night. So there's this sort of unofficial curfew in a way. Most people who have to travel around in public transport will tell you stories of, of being robbed at gunpoint by people who board these buses. That is extraordinarily and alarmingly common. Probably next down the list is, is the shortages. So if you can't afford the black market, you're forced to queue for hours on end. Some people who work late at night go straight to the supermarket before they go to bed in order to be at the front of the queue. Almost everyone in this city is just hoping that it won't be too long before they can really leave much more of a normal life rather than just sort of surviving, which is how many people describe living in Caracas at the moment. There are examples of weathering quite serious threats. The devaluing ruble, political crackdowns and war in Ukraine have rocked Russia's foundations. I lived in Moscow in the wild east years of the mid-1990s, so how's it going now? We rang up Noah Snyder, our Moscow correspondent. Because Russia is so centralized and Moscow is the center of the center, it's a place where resources and power are so highly concentrated that as a city it's been able to weather the worst of the crisis in fairly decent terms. And throughout 
the past couple of years, even as uh, Russia has been dealing with the federal budget crisis, as Russians have been dealing with falling incomes, we've seen Moscow, the city, uh, continue to invest in its own development. And according to Noah, even in Putin's Moscow, culture is thriving. Moscow is becoming a more and more livable place. There has been an effort uh, by the city authorities uh, to spruce up public space, uh, to turn parts of the city into pedestrian districts, to provide free Wi-Fi on public transportation, opening a city bikes program, and the cultural life, despite the political realities here, is still flourishing, and it's a place where you can see terrific music and brilliant theatre and, and interesting art nearly every day of the week. And as in Russia, according to Nick Pelham, there are some things that even the most trenchant crisis can't diminish. There are a few uh, bright spots. Rabat uh, in Morocco remains one of the most beautiful capitals anywhere in the world. In Tehran, I think the authorities have, have given a surprising focus to public space. You've seen some really quite impressive new squares in the capital. There does seem to be a greater concern with public space there than in many cities in the Arab world. There may even be some green shoots in beleaguered Caracas. There's quite a lot of building going on in Caracas, which seems extraordinary given the steep recession. People are investing, if they can, in doing up their houses or small businesses building offices. So it's a place to park your money and perhaps reflects some do still have a bit of optimism that brighter days are are ahead and a brighter economic situation is going to be ahead too. Now, while immigration has been a testy issue of late, some European financial capitals are licking their lips at the prospect of new arrivals in the form of London firms and workers who might need a new place to go when Britain leaves the EU. Yes, it could be a case of moi le déluge, as our city guru Philip Coggan explains. Hi, I'm Philip Coggan. I'm the Buttonwood columnist of The Economist. It's impossible to tell at the moment because we don't know the final shape of the deal which the UK will negotiate with the rest of the EU. Now, if you are a member of the single market, then you don't need to have passporting rights for your financial services companies. And that means you can operate within the EU on a consistent basis. If that is the case after Brexit, then there's no need for anyone to leave. If you're completely excluded from the single market, then there's a case for some businesses to leave, or at least part of their businesses to leave, because they will need to have operations within the EU that get the most passport rights. Sasha Nauter, our European finance correspondent, remembers one city that was particularly keen. The day after Brexit, I found myself in Frankfurt and the people of Frankfurt were very excited about the prospects that Brexit held for them. They'd set up a marketing committee that was going around the houses with roadshows, set up a hotline for London city bankers and were all ready to showcase the best that Frankfurt had to offer. They were really going out all guns blazing, so to speak. So we thought we'd ask Sasha and some of our other correspondents in places hoping to be Brexit beneficiaries if their cities could be livable alternatives for those city workers left out in the cold. Hello, I'm Sophie Pedder. I'm the Economist's Paris Bureau Chief. Paris has obviously got natural beauty and the history the architecture, the museums, the culture, it's well known for all of that. But I think what really makes it livable is its compact size. You know, you can almost walk anywhere you need to in the centre of Paris. And that makes it just an incredibly pleasant and beautiful place to walk around and go from meeting to meeting in. Hi, I'm Stanley Pinal, and I'm the Economist South Asia Business and Finance Correspondent based in Mumbai. 
Well, so here's the pitch. Uh, what Mumbai has is that it's the financial capital of the world's fastest growing economy. In 2016, 2017, the Indian economy will grow around 7 to 8%, which is not something that anywhere in Europe or the US or Japan can boast about. So the argument is, you know, New York, London, it's for, for old school fuddy-duddies. Mumbai is clearly the, the financial city of the future. I think what makes Frankfurt a, a solid choice is exactly that. It's got all the basic infrastructure in place to be a financial city. It works. It's German, after all. It's got good connections to the rest of Europe, great airports, trains that more or less run on time. And of course, it's the home to the European Central Bank. That, of course, has a natural draw because they set monetary policy in Europe. Hi, I'm Simon Rabinovich, Asia Economics Editor. I've reported from Shanghai for the past three years. Shanghai certainly has a lot of things that London doesn't. It also lacks a lot of things that London has. That said, in terms of upside potential, Shanghai is is a very, very strong candidate to replace London. It is the financial center of the Chinese market, the Chinese market being the fastest growing large financial market out there in the world. It's uh, fairly easy to get around. There's you know, 20 subway lines. Not, not that people in finance necessarily want to go to Disney World, but there's a new Disney World here as well. So there's a lot of investment in kind of the softer side of life, not, not just the hardware of infrastructure. I mean, obviously, the cafe lifestyle, the food scene, the wine, the champagne, all the obvious sides of the sort of gastronomic life that's in Paris is a huge appeal. I think it's those quiet moments, that small little place, little square on the left bank that's uh, isolated, hidden down little streets. And you can hear the, the click of a stiletto on the cobblestone. It's that sense of something being very quiet and still. It's almost timeless and yet right in the center of the capital of France. And I think it's that that's when you feel a real connection to Paris. But these alternatives do all have marked downsides too. Sasha Nauter. Where to start? The word that probably comes up in bankers' minds most is boring. There is not an awful lot going on in Frankfurt after six o'clock. You can meander along the river, um, but there's not sort of that much in terms of culture or nightlife or, or restaurants, etc. It's a relatively small city. Stanley Pignal. So the downsides, aside from the traffic, which I, I can't emphasize enough, is, is really awful at some times of day. There's none of the sort of restaurant clubbing scene that you would get in other financial centers like New York and London. Uh, Mumbai, from that point of view, is, is pretty restricted. And the financial sector is, is actually doing very badly. 70% of banks are publicly owned. They're basically in the process of getting bailed out. So it's actually going to be a couple of years before you really see a lot of, a lot of exciting banking activity. Sophie Pedder. I think that the one thing one has to recognise is that Paris has become a bit more of a tense uh, city since the terrorist attacks, a sense that there have been a number of attacks and there probably will be, will be further ones. But it doesn't mean that life can't go on. It just means that there's a sort of undercurrent of tension right now. Simon Rabinovich. Pollution certainly is a big concern. Traffic can be a headache. Food quality can be an issue as well. So we might find out that when push comes to shove, the deluge may turn out to be a passing shower. The upside to staying is that London is a place with a critical mass to appeal as an international financial centre. It also has cultural advantages. Many people like living and working in London, which they won't necessarily feel the same about uh, Frankfurt. The uh, famous weekend wobble that hedge fund managers supposedly experience where they get frustrated by rule changes or tax changes announced they're going to Switzerland 
go home, talk to the wife, discover that the family would rather stay in London and on Monday again uh, they decide to stick in London. Now, as John Copstake told us, livability is in the eye of the beholder. But the cities at the top got there for a reason. Toronto sits in fourth place, just 0.3 points out of 100 off Melbourne at the top. Our Canada correspondent makes a persuasive case for why. Hello, I'm Madeline Drohan. I'm the Canada correspondent for The Economist. Toronto's easy to get around, and it's also safe and a relatively clean city. I mean, the joke when we were growing up was there was a famous British actor who called Toronto New York run by the Swiss. And it's become uh, an incredibly diverse city. So if you have a passion for, say, a Tibetan meal one night and then want to go to a Spanish flamenco show the next, Everything is there. It all depends on which part of the city you want to go to. Toronto has even faced down its trickiest enemy, General Winter. I find that Toronto has found a very interesting solution to that. They've created this incredible network beneath the city. It's called the PATH system. And you can basically, in winter, not go outside at all if you don't want to and still go everywhere you want to in downtown. I find that, I mean, it's this subterranean city that I haven't seen anywhere else. Livability, however, can be a poison chalice. Toronto it might be livable, but it's getting harder and harder to be able to afford a house there. Because so many people want to go there, including a lot of foreign investors, I suppose, that you have to move farther and farther out or else have a lot of money if you want to live right in the centre of town. And how we define that kind of livability, that something that can make the top of the list a problematic place to be, was something John Fassman pointed out to us. He's in Singapore these days, but spent many years as the Southern Correspondent based in Atlanta. The two cities are neighbours on the list, separated by just a tenth of a percentage point on the EIU's scale, with Singapore nosing ahead. But John thinks that maybe his old Georgia home deserves a bit more love. This is John Fassman. I'm the Economist Southeast Asia Bureau Chief. On our annual ranking of the world's most livable cities, my current and former homes rank 46th and 47th. I'm proud of both of them. Now, having lived in both, I guess a more personal answer would that I have a tremendous amount of respect for Singapore, for how, through sound urban planning and really sheer force of will, its founders took a country with few natural advantages and made it into a global financial hub with an enviable standard of living, especially when I come back from a regional megacity where I've spent hours each day in traffic. I really respect Singapore's orderliness, its cleanliness, and its safety. But I love Atlanta. And like anyone you love, you start out loving it despite its imperfections and end up loving it because of them. So because traffic makes Atlanta so difficult to get around, it's a city of neighborhoods. And you can have sort of a village life in a city of six million people. Now, we got very lucky in the neighborhood we landed in. We lived in East Lake, right next to Decatur, and in the people we found. And because the cost of living is low, you can meet interesting people doing interesting things on their own terms. Photographers, children's book writers, neuroscientists, public interest lawyers, and it's a mix you really don't find in many other places. For me, a perfect afternoon in Atlanta is spent with family and friends. Uh, Usually in someone's backyard, there's a grill fired up, so you're cooking, you're running around, you're talking, you're telling jokes, you know, maybe there's a neighborhood festival involved. So you have a picnic blanket spread out on the ground, and somebody's playing music. And the perfect afternoon in Atlanta lasts until 10 p.m., and there are sleeping kids everywhere because no one ever wants to go home. 
Uh, for me, Atlanta is a more livable city. It's more comfortable. It's more open. It's more accepting. There's a little more chaos and warmth. And for me, that's part of what makes a city livable. There's an intangible factor to it. Oh, thanks to John Fassman. So maybe you're thinking of relocating to somewhere that's not top of the list, but picking a winner for the future. Well, that's an issue on which the report's author, John Copstake, is happy to weigh in. We've just been hearing about some of the most highly ranked cities in the world. But one of the things that interested me was the way that top cities in the world, the Melbournes, Vancouver's, Toronto's, etc., are kind of variations on a theme. The fastest rising cities, however, are a bit more of a misfit. Harare and Tehran, for example, figure in your list there. So what is that variety of city doing to gain upward momentum through your rankings? So what happens here is that once you get to the top, there's not much further to go. Things get very tight. Um, there's very, it's very hard to make gains in, in areas where you're already performing very well. Whereas cities towards the bottom of the ranking, there's much more scope for them to improve and make improvements. And I think that's the cities where you're seeing um, cities like Douala and Harare moving up the rankings in, in, in that way. They've suffered very, very, very badly, especially a while back, maybe a decade ago. But now they're, they're starting to see improvements feed through. A big example here is Tehran in Iran. That's a, that's a very upwardly mobile city at the moment, um, largely because of the opening up of the, the borders there and, and because the, of the end to some of the sanctions that have been in place. Finally, what's your advice to mayors or town planners, urbanists, as we now call them, who want to see their cities rise to the, the top? What are the crucial things that they should do to make their places more livable? Well, the key factor that really helps drive livability up is usually stability. If you can create a stable environment, then you will attract investment, you will attract people to your city and people will want to live there. And then from that, then obviously you can build up the other factors. Without stability, you can't improve infrastructure, you can't improve healthcare. So for us, that's the first building block for improvements. But then obviously you have to obviously invest heavily in infrastructure, healthcare, education, and that will obviously then attract people that will make a city more culturally diverse and more culturally attractive to people. And then you'll see more people coming, international artists, etc., which will put it into the top tier. Thank you very much, John. That's it for what I hope has been a livable special on Economist Radio. But what about you? What makes your city unmissable or unbearable? Let us know on Twitter at Economist Radio or via email to radio at economist.com. So in London, in Venezuela, in Shanghai, in Singapore, in Toronto, in Mumbai, in Moscow, in Paris, this is The Economist. 